Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good afternoon to those of you in the United States, good evening to those of you in the United Kingdom, and good morning to those of you down under in Australia who listen to V Radio. Uh, good evening also to those of you in Europe. Uh, tonight, we have a special guest on, Alexis from the Millions Against Monsanto movement. Uh, we'll be talking about that in just a moment. Um, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. There you can find archives of more shows like this one, lots of great guests with scientists, uh, documentary filmmakers, activists, uh, in some cases politicians, of you know generally of an activist bent. Uh, in addition to my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries to watch online that I come highly recommended, I have a forum set up there. Not to mention, you can also check out the uh, Facebook group for my upcoming documentary, Troll. And the Facebook group is linked there on the website. If you like what you hear here on V Radio, you can make a contribution by clicking Donate. And um, that was basically it as far as the station identification. Uh, welcome, Alexis, to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here with you. Well, um, first of all, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience, and then we'll go from there. Hi there, I'm Alexis Badenmayer. I work in Washington, D.C. for the Organic Consumers Association on our Millions Against Monsanto campaign. Okay, well, Alexis, um, first of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about your organization, uh, the Organic, what was that again? The Organic Consumers Association. We're on the web at organicconsumers.org. Well, go ahead and first talk about that a little bit. Well, we started in the late 1990s after a prolonged fight to see if we could get GMOs or prevent GMOs from entering our food supply. And that was uh, the Pure Food Campaign. And then our organization formed as the Organic Consumers Association to keep GMOs out of organic. The, The Clinton administration wanted to allow genetically modified organisms to be used in organic farming. And this just set people off. There were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who who sent letters to the administration, and we successfully blocked that attempt to contaminate organic standards with GMOs. And from that started the Organic Trade, or sorry, the Organic Consumers Association. And so for the last uh, 12 years, or more, we've been working to keep organic standards strong and fighting GMOs. Now, by GMOs, obviously, we're talking about genetically modified uh, plants, crops, animals, things of that nature. And now, let's talk a little bit about what makes them dangerous. Sure. Um, it's clear we've been told by the makers of genetically modified organisms that they can safely enter our food supply without enter without entering or damaging our bodies. But we know now that that is not true. There was one study done in the UK where after a single serving of genetically modified soy, the gut bacteria in the human subject was found to contain genetically modified DNA from that soy. And then more recently, there was a study done in Canada, and it showed that Monsanto's BT gene it's a, um, a bacterial toxin that is um, found in Monsanto's corn and in Monsanto's cotton and 
people might be surprised, but we actually do eat cottonseed oil. Many trans fats, hydrogenated vegetable oils, include cottonseed oil. So the Canadian doctors found that just through a normal Canadian diet that contained uh, a bit of GMO corn and cottonseed oil, women who were of reproductive age had Bt toxin from this genetically modified corn and cotton in their bloodstream. And the study included 39 pregnant women. Most of them had Bt toxin in their bloodstream, and most of their babies had GMOs in the blood of the umbilical cord. That is just horrifying to even think about. Um, now, when it comes to the Millions Against Monsanto campaign, and then I'm going to ask you some questions about you, but first of all, let's talk about what that's about and how people can get involved. The Millions Against Monsanto campaign is an effort to build political power in our movement to stop GMOs. It, 90% of U.S. citizens support the idea that consumers have a right to know whether we're eating genetically modified foods or not. Right now, only 26% of the public is aware that GMOs are even in our food supply at all. So, you know, three-fourths of us aren't even aware or trying to avoid GMOs, and the quarter of us that, that want to avoid GMOs can't because GMO food isn't labeled. So it's really absurd, though, and horribly undemocratic that in a country where 90% of the people support the idea that genetically modified food should be labeled, we have been unsuccessful so far in demanding this of our government. Uh, Representative Kucinich has introduced GMO labeling bills since the late 1990s. They've never had more than 50 co-sponsors. And every single presidential administration has approved new GMOs for our food supply and has never required labeling, including the Obama administration, even though President Obama campaigned on the platform that he supported GMO labels. He has approved alfalfa and sugar beets and corn designed to turn rapidly into ethanol, but which is unedible, and also may be the first president to approve a genetically modified animal. He's currently considering GMO salmon. So President Obama said that he supported GMO labeling, but he's approved four new GMOs for food supply without labels. So at that point, you know, after you build a mass movement, you have majority support. If you cannot get the politicians to listen, you, I mean, our organization, we figured we're doing something wrong. We're not building the type of political power that we need. So the Millions Against Monsanto campaign is designed to turn this widespread support for GMO labels into a politically viable movement. Our goal this year, just to begin, is to get 2,300 supporters, 2,300 supporters in each of the 435 congressional districts in the U.S. And from there, we are going to build a movement that can elect politicians who support GMO labeling, make GMO labeling a campaign issue, and win ballot initiatives at the local and state level to label genetically modified foods and pass legislation at the state and federal level that would require GMO labels. Yeah, I mean, it's, it actually made me smile when you mentioned Representative Kucinich. I'm actually in the middle of negotiation right now to get him on a future episode of E Radio. He's definitely my favorite of among the congressmen. Um, and uh, it, you know, it, it's great that you're doing this work. And you know, I was 
generally frustrated in my in my attempts to try to educate people about how bad Monsanto is and how deeply rooted in the government it really is. Uh, most people, for example, did not know that Donald Rumsfeld was the CEO uh, of Monsanto and that they're just the generally terrible things that they do. Um, we can get into that as the show progresses, of course. Now, I want to ask, obviously, uh, the same traditional question I ask of all of my guests is, uh, what was the precipice for you? What made you decide to become an activist? Well, I've been an activist all of my life. My parents were involved in the peace and justice movement. They supported the nuclear freeze to stop testing of nuclear weapons and to stop manufacturing nuclear weapons. They supported the cause for peace in Latin America when the United States was funding dirty wars down there. And so I grew up in an activist household. Um, but I didn't, I was not involved in food issues. I, when I was in high school, I thought that the most important topic, this was in the in the um, early, late 1980s and early 1990s, I, I really was motivated to stop the war on drugs. And I still believe passionately that it's a foul system to put people in jail for what is essentially a health problem where they're addicted to uh, a dangerous substance. But this, you know, is a health problem that affects very few people. And yet the drug war affects, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who end up going to jail each year because economically they're driven into selling or using drugs um, because it's such a lucrative black market. So that was my main cause. And actually, so I came into sustainable agriculture, um, into those causes through the work that I did on drug legalization. I came across the topic of industrial hemp, and I started learning about sustainable crops like industrial hemp that have the ability to sequester carbon um, to improve the soil, to clean up contaminated soil, uh, to, to improve water quality and air quality, uh, crops that didn't use a lot of herbicides and chemical fertilizers, um, crops that be, could be used in sustainable building or to make sustainable biofuels. And so I got turned on basically to organic agriculture, although I wasn't really aware of it by that name. And then through working on industrial hemp, I came across the Organic Consumers Association and um, and started learning about, you know, it's not just industrial hemp. Obviously, there's a whole farming movement that really could save the world. And I got very enamored of this uh, amazing solution to so many of the world's problems. Organic agriculture can increase yield, increase the healthy food available to people on a local level, and um, it can do so with, without taking any toll on the environment. Organic farming actually improves air quality, water quality, and soil quality, whereas industrial farming is, is destroying the quality of all those things while producing unhealthy food. So um, at that point, I was hooked, and I badly wanted to work for the Organic Consumers Association and got the opportunity to do so. And then, you know, I just wanted to promote how great organic was. And it, we've always run campaigns against new genetically modified foods, and I, of course, supported those. Um, but it didn't become um, a desperate issue for us until this year because, I mean, it's, it's always a desperate issue, but it became our, our very, very top priority. We realized that even more so than promoting organic agriculture as a solution to so many problems, we needed to stop genetically modified foods, and we needed to do it through a grassroots movement that was not reliant on the good word of politicians like 
President Obama, who we really thought like, oh, well, when President Obama gets into office, all of the new GMO crops that the Bush administration wanted to approve, they're not going to get through because President Obama, he's on our side and he supports what we support. And even if he did approve them, they'd be labeled and they'd never get um, market approval. But we found that that was wrong, that we couldn't count on even the progressive politicians who said that they were on our side. We've, we've got to do something different. And if we don't stop Monsanto and if we don't stop genetically modified organisms, we just don't have any chance for an organic future. It's not enough. I mean, I work as an activist, so I, I don't I have a little garden, but I don't do as much organic farming as I would like to. But I realize now, even if I were to move out to an organic farm, put my heart and soul into producing the type of world I want to live in, it, it's not going to be enough if Monsanto's crops are still out there. Monsanto's crops will contaminate the seed supply, and it'll make it impossible to grow organically. Plus, they're dousing our fields with so many chemical pesticides and fertilizers that you know our soil and our water and our air is going to be permanently damaged by this industrial farming model. So uh, I certainly, my life dream would be to live on an organic farm, but I feel that there is work to do as an activist to stop organizations like Monsanto from, from destroying our future. Well, you know, it's it's actually uh, something I've done a lot of studying on because I'm I'm known for being kind of a documentary junkie, and I've watched uh, the world according to Monsanto and the future of food, uh, both of which you can find links to on my um, on my website. To those of you who are listening, there's a reason I put them on the must see TV list because the stuff that's going on here is really scary, and it's not really well known. Uh, we do pay a lot of attention to the war issue, uh, and we do pay a lot of attention to different things that could be very, you know, potentially dangerous. But some of the stuff that Monsanto is doing, you know, it, it, they're basically trying to ensure, first of all, that they have control over all the seeds. That was another thing that came through politics that kind of bothered me. It was in the original Constitution, you couldn't patent something that was living. And now Monsanto has been permitted to patent all kinds of different seeds because of the idea, well, if it's genetically modified, it's my intellectual property and I should be able to, you know, to patent it. And now they're patenting regular strains as well. And then what's worse is that, you know, even if you didn't put it in your field, they, they of course told us that, you know, that these things would never cross pollinate, but we are finding that they did in fact cross pollinate into other farmers fields who didn't even want the stuff. They, they make it generally for their roundup. Uh, most people also don't know that Monsanto is the same company that gave us Agent Orange, the cancer-causing agent that it, you know that got, gave so many of our Vietnam veterans cancer. Um, but basically, they they make this Roundup-ready uh, crops, and then they make Roundup weed killer. And the Roundup, they genetically modified uh, soy, corn, a few different crops. I think alfalfa as well to be resistant to Roundup. And their goal was eventually, because this is the funny thing, is, is that if they find it on your field, even if you didn't plant it, the, court, the case law so far states that Monsanto can sue your pants off and demand that you give them, or rather that you destroy your seed stores. A lot of farmers you know, have you know, basically seeds that they have harvested themselves, and this, of course, hurts the seed industry. So to maximize profits, they're trying to make sure that farmers are required to buy new seed. And then now, finally, even worse, they're working on a Terminator genetic that basically will cause a plant to go through a single uh, planting and then die, leaving no seed. And remember, they, of course, told us that these things would never cross-pollinate. The implications on a global scale for what would happen 
if all of our plants or even a good percentage of our plants on this planet uh, basically cross-pollinated with this genetic would be just massive die-offs of the foliage on the planet, which would very easily end, lead to the just, I mean, the end of all life here. Uh, people don't tend to think about how dangerous that is. And it's just the, the way these people monkey around playing God, you know, I, it's kind of sad, you know, because I think that genetic modifying could, could be beneficial. But in, in these cases, these corporations motivated by profit, they don't, they don't genetically modify anything to be safer. They don't genetically modify anything to be more nutritious. They don't genetically modify anything for any practical purpose aside from having higher crop yields so that they can make more money. And at the end of the day, exhaustive testing is not, you know, as expensive or is, is more expensive than just lobbying a politician to deregulate. That's right. Um, Monsanto really could destroy the future of food. And that documentary that you mentioned earlier is a must-see for anyone interested in learning more about this subject. It is a matter of life or death on this planet. And that's, it's amazing to me how little people really realize it. And the, you were also talking about the dangers of industrialized farming. We, we talk about, obviously, the, the way they treat the animals is just disgusting. But um, in addition to that, it, it uses ridiculous amounts of fresh water. And we're actually looking at the possibility of a shortage of that in the next 50 years. It uses just ginormous amounts of gasoline. You know, and with peak oil being a possible reality, you know, obviously that's going to, you know, continue to cause the, the prices of food to rise. And it also amazes me how little people really know about making their own food. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've, in our society in general, we have changed so much that, you know, if you ask the average teenager, well, heck, let's move it up. The average college student, you know, uh, do you know how to, pro you know, to plant your own crops? If there was no supermarket tomorrow, what would you do? You know, these people generally have no idea. You know, that's the, the answer I usually give is like, you know, if aliens ever showed up and took all of our supermarkets and all of our department stores, the vast majority of the populace would have no idea how to take care of itself. And that's one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is we're becoming dependent on all of this. Uh, and it's basically I, I, I look into it and it, it kind of scares me. I mean, I myself, I lived on a farm growing up, so I had that exposure. I can't say that I'd be an expert on it, but. You know, if I really had to, I could probably make some food for myself. Um, but it seems as though society is changing in such a way to make this kind of information uh, less and less prevalent. And actually, it almost seems to, when you think about it, benefit the corporations that we continue to be ignorant about how to produce our own things, because then, you know, they will continue to be our only source for it. So um, I guess now... The okay, there was actually a question that kept coming up, and I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, was that I've had a lot of my European and you know foreign uh, listeners have asked me how they could possibly get involved with what you're doing, since Monsanto's practices are affecting the whole world. Well, there are international organizations that are working on this issue. The two that come to mind that we've worked with here in the United States are Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace. And those are, are two big international organizations that have always been leaders on this issue. And, of course, there are, are organizations in, in every country working against GMOs. Um, it's amazing how the rest of the world understands this issue so much better than people in the United States. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised. We have a political system that's bought and, and paid for by, for, by corporations. And uh, Monsanto is a very, very rich, powerful corporation, very well connected to government. So the information that we get in the United States 
comes through that filter and the policies that are made in the government in the United States comes through that filter. But the rest of the world, as the technology is exported out of the United States to, to other countries, they can look at it with a more objective eye. And Europe has certainly um, been very good at applying the precautionary principle when related to GMOs. And the, the European activist movement continues to, to impress. But even in poor countries, where where you would think, you know, these these countries and these farmers in these countries would be at the mercy of the United States and whatever generous food aid we could give them, um, they're rejecting it. The the best example is in Haiti after the earthquake. Monsanto and the USAID organization, our um, our philanthropic arm of the government, wanted to donate seed from Monsanto to the Haitian government to distribute at low cost through um, you know, agricultural stores on the local level in Haiti to help Haiti you know, with its agriculture after the earthquake. And certainly they needed all the help they could get, but they knew that they did not need Monsanto's help. The Haitian government immediately said, we don't, we're not taking any genetically modified seeds. So that was off the table immediately. And what was agreed to at the governmental level in Haiti is that Monsanto would donate a few tons of seed that had fungicide on it and that was hybrid, meaning that it couldn't be um, grown out true and you couldn't save the seeds to grow the same crop the next year. Now, a, a very small peasant organization in Haiti connected to another great international organization on this issue, Via Campesina, and I encourage everyone internationally to, to look up Via Campesina, Friends of the Earth, and Greenpeace. Those are all international organizations that have um, local groups in many, many countries. So the, the local Via Campesina group is a peasant farmers organization in Haiti, and they said right away, if you send Monsanto's seed into our agriculture supply stores locally, we are going to take that seed and burn it. We don't want it. <laughs> And and this is you know this is the difference between middle class Americans and poor farmers. It's like you said, it's whether or not you know how food is produced and whether or not you know how to grow it. And if you live in a world where all you know is the Walmart and the grocery store and you think food magically appears at McDonald's ready to eat in a package, then you're you're missing the boat. You don't realize how how dangerous this is for our future. But if you live on a small subsistence farm and you grow your own food, there there are a certain number of things you know that are essential to your future and your livelihood. First is seed. You save your seed, you trade your seed with farmers in your region, you have seed that has been developed over millennia for the particular climate and soil of your region. Your seed is your your livelihood. Your seed is your future. It is your gift from your ancestors, and it is your responsibility to make it available to future generations. So farmers know that they need to save their seed and pass it on, and they know better than to take seed from a big multinational corporation, let alone pay for that seed and get caught up in a debt cycle. It, it's really another 
horrible example, not as inspiring, much more depressing than the example in Haiti. In India, farmers, many farmers did buy into the Green Revolution and the idea that purchasing seed, superior seed from a company like Monsanto and purchasing the chemicals that went along with that seed was the way to go. Farmers in India bought into Monsanto's BT cotton. And very, very soon, they ended up with crushing debt. And that's something Americans do understand. We understand the debt cycle. Most of us are very deeply in debt. And um, so you can feel someone's pain when you, you know, as a farmer, you have to buy your seed every year when you used to save it and distribute it. And it was your wealth that you created yourself. Now you buy it from a company. And then you have to buy the agricultural chemicals that that seed requires. So in in India, where farmers got caught up in, in debt to the seed companies and to the chemical companies, they couldn't take it. And tens of thousands of farmers have committed suicide because they knew that they were going to lose their family's farm, which meant that they were going to lose the ability to provide for their family today and to make a life that would make future generations in their family possible. And this was uh, too crushing a realization for tens of thousands of farmers in India who have committed suicide over the last decade once being caught up in the debt cycle to companies like Monsanto. And, you know, we've heard stories like that, of course, you know, they're not stories, they're real people's lives, but this has certainly happened to farmers in the United States. Farmers have lost their farms and committed suicide. We have seen, um, you know, family-sized farms diminishing. And I think that there's a positive, though, because in the United States, we've seen that organic farms are thriving. And the fastest growing segment of agriculture in the United States is micro farms, really small scale farms that are tapped into local markets, either directly selling to restaurants or selling to consumers through farmers markets or organizing community supported agriculture products where where members can buy a share of a farm and then get a share of the harvest each year. And and this segment of farming, even though we've seen larger scale family farms diminish in recent years, we are seeing a resurgence of family farms at the at the very local small scale level. So this is this is the future. We don't have to put ourselves in debt to the chemical companies. We can grow organic. We can access local markets. And as consumers, you know, if, if growing your own food sounds like a frightening prospect, then you should respect your local farmers and support the monumental effort that it takes to produce healthy organic food. It, it's not more costly to buy a share in a CSA, a community-supported agriculture project, where you get food direct from the farm. It's not more expensive to do that than to buy the junk food that's sold at the grocery store. And when you do this, you're supporting your own future. You know, maybe you can't grow your food yourself, but you can invest in the farm economy local to to where you live, and you can feel good knowing that in the next generation, if, if we all support farms like this, there will be healthy food available for our children and grandchildren. 
You know, that's that's all actually very inspiring that you're getting this work done. And I and the other thing, I mean, there's a major benefit to, to this, too, is that the food tends to taste better. It, I mean, even if you're just going to be selfish about it from that perspective, um, for example, apples. I stopped liking apples. I just didn't like them anymore. I didn't know why. They just, you know, they tasted kind of bland. And then one day, you know, I bought a bag of local Michigan apples, and they tasted so good. It was like I had eaten an apple for the first time in my life all over again, you know, and they were farmed locally, organically, and they tasted so much better. Uh, I've had the same experience with organic lettuce, organic tomatoes. You know, they just they have so much more flavor. And uh, in addition to that, I mean, like uh, in my trip to Ireland, uh, while I was there, everything tasted better in Ireland. And that's because the places like an organic farm from one side to the other, you know, a lot of very natural old school, you know, styles of farming. Um, and basically the, the meat all tasted better. The vegetables all tasted better. The water tasted better. And it's largely just because there isn't a lot of industry there ruining everything. Um, and that's basically a, an aspect of this. You know, it, if it tastes better, that's generally a message your brain is sending you. There's something about this that, that is better. So keep doing it. <laughs> you know, if, especially if it's that natural, wholesome flavor. I'm not talking about the kind of feeling you get from, uh, you know, for example, from eating junk food, because we've, we've proven a lot of that is like monosodium glutamate and, and other garbage that they throw in there. But at the end of the day, you eat some junk food, you don't necessarily feel as good about it. When I have a nice organic salad, I feel better afterwards. I feel different uh, for sure than, than eating stuff that, you know, I got, you know, it's it, it, the things that they have to do uh, to fruit and vegetables to, to cause it to survive in their produce section is probably an indication, you know, as to why it tastes different for sure. Uh, but every time I've ever done anything from scratch or, or used, you know, especially homegrown vegetables. And that is one thing I'm actually pretty happy about. I don't know if this is going on in all of the States, but here in Michigan, there's a huge hydroponic movement um, people are learning about hydroponics again because, unfortunately, uh, a lot of us lived in very, you know, tied-up situations or maybe we live in apartments and the idea of planting a garden just isn't possible. But uh, hydroponic systems are breaking up, like, or basically are, are opening up all over the place, the different stores that will sell you everything you need to be able to make your own uh, vegetables and fruits right there in your house, uh, inside, you know, year-round, Um and uh, so I'm looking forward to the future on that particularly, and I definitely agree with the idea that it should be, we should be told if something's genetically modified, it's it's kind of stands to reason. It's almost shocking that it isn't, you know, that, that it isn't standard. Um, and it, you know, and why would they be fighting it so, you know, so much? Well, obviously they're fighting it because they don't want us to know what's in the products they're giving us. They just want us to buy them. You know, they don't want us to know the effects of monosodium glutamate any more than the cigarette companies wanted us to know that their product was addictive and dangerous. Um, and that's one of the dangers of, you know, profit-motivated business uh, is that people will take a lot of shortcuts and put you in a lot of positions that are, you know, that are just not good for you but are good for them. Um, you know, the obesity epidemic is linked to all of this too. Uh, the the power of things like, um, uh, what was it? Yeah, high fructose corn syrup. Oh, man. Uh, there's a whole documentary, it's actually more of a lecture about that called uh, The Bitter Truth, Sugar, or Sugar, The Bitter Truth, that talks about how uh, high fructose corn syrup is essentially put together by companies and now largely also genetically modified, I might add, um, that is basically uh, designed to do things like, you know, not inform your brain that you're full. Uh, you'll notice that when you go to fast food restaurants, the, the size of the drink keeps getting bigger and bigger. And the reason why is they want to fill your stomach with a whole 
crap load of high fructose corn syrup so that you want to you want to eat more. Uh, that, you know, how many times have you been to a fast food restaurant where you sat down and eat your, you know, ate your little combo and drank your drink, and then all of a sudden you're going back up there to buy something else, whether it's a dessert or, you know, sometimes even another sandwich or for more, you know, more fries or whatever. You know, and all of that stuff is garbage. And, you know, it, it kind of like you, we were talking about, about the, the breast milk issue and how our children are getting exposed to this stuff. Uh, you know, some people, I, I, I remember watching, I, I can't remember if it was in one of the two films I mentioned or not, but they stated that the current state of a lot of human breast milk is so bad that it wouldn't even be approved as a product. Um, like you could not legally sell uh, breast milk with some of the things that you find in it, depending, of course, on where you live and, you know, the individual. Like if the mother has had a good diet, it's not going to be that way. But, you know, have you ever heard of those studies? Um, no, I actually haven't. I mean, well, I guess I have heard that there are a lot of um, carcinogens and dangerous chemicals found in, in human breast milk, but I hadn't heard the, um, you know, the obvious result mm -hmm. of that is that this that's contaminated food that might not be allowed to be sold if it were a, a product on the market. So I guess that makes total sense. Um, getting back to the the issue of genetic engineering, um, there is nothing that is sacred. And, you know, the United States has been pushing its GMOs on the rest of the world for the last um, 15 years or so. And But, you know, at one point the tide is going to turn. Uh, currently, Chinese researchers are putting together a product that they're Thing is a genetically modified uh, human-like or human breast milk-like milk, but it's produced in cows that are genetically modified to make a milk that is similar to human breast milk. So, you know, there couldn't be anything more repulsive than the idea of babies being fed a genetically modified cow milk that's designed to be um, a simulation of human breast milk. But these types of things are the future of genetic engineering, uh, not the future of food, the future of a fake, yucky idea of food. You know, they're, they're saying it's like human breast milk because it has a certain fat content and it has a, a few proteins and hormones that are normally found in human breast milk. But how can, you know, you cannot replicate, um, you can't replicate anything, any product of nature entirely. It's, it's amazing how primitive genetic engineering is as a technology. It, it routinely produces plants and animals and products, I guess, like this so-called breast milk, that are, are nothing like the original. They're nothing like what we consider natural. Unfortunately, the U.S. government has taken the position that it's close enough. Maybe it's not exactly like the original, but it's close enough. And But all evidence points to the fact that, that plants and animals that are genetically modified fail to thrive. It, genetically modified crops don't yield as well as, as normal crops. Even Monsanto's latest invention, the, their raison d'etre, has been for the last couple of years of marketing this idea that they're going to produce more with less, and they're going to come up with crops that can do things like resist drought. So they've got a drought-resistant, so-called drought-resistant crop that they're seeking approval for right now, and the USDA is currently considering this. And it turns out that the, the so-called drought-resistant 
corn doesn't resist drought any better than conventional corn. And I think the, the true secret behind these companies is that anything that's good about the crop, they achieved through conventional breeding. They stick in the genetically modified DNA, one, so they can patent it, and secondly, if they can stick in a, a DNA from a bacteria that's resistant to one of their herbicides or stick in DNA that allows the plant to produce a pesticide, then they can also market their products along with their herbicides and pesticides and insecticides. So we always have to keep in mind Monsanto is not a food producer. Monsanto is a chemical company. Their whole business model relies on selling chemicals, and these chemicals, you know, they used, they were used in Agent Orange in the Vietnam War, and they haven't gotten safer since then. These are toxic chemicals, and we should be trying to reduce their use, not increase it. That's very true. And, you know, I, in looking at it, uh, I hope that you guys succeed in what you're doing, and I'm glad that Representative Kucinich is pushing uh, for it because it gets it on C-SPAN. Um, and we've been seeing a trend recently that certain partisan politicians like Congressman Ron Paul and uh, Representative Kucinich have been able to get certain issues that generally just don't get talked about a little bit more exposure. Um, and uh, it, it gives me some hope. I, I'm a little skeptical at times about the effectiveness of politics to fix things because, unfortunately, uh, these people are elected in many cases, you know, after accepting donations from companies like Monsanto. But occasionally you do have a partisan politician who can come forward and get changes made that are beneficial. And when those people show up, you know, ladies and gentlemen, those are the ones that we need to help because these people, because they're in that position, are not getting money from these major corporations. And they are running against a competition that is. And they, of course, will, you know, at that point, get more exposure. Uh, you find it in the media as well. It's difficult to, you know, to get the media to talk about Monsanto. Uh, there was actually, uh, it was in, I believe, the movie The Corporation, but it might have been in Outfoxed. But it was about a couple of investigative journalists who had discovered that Monsanto was using uh, bovine growth hormone that was being linked directly to cancer. And so they were getting ready to do an expose on it. So the corporations involved, obviously, that would have lost money, just kind of took control of the media in that situation and said, you're just not going to put that on. They just basically tried to bury the story. And then afterwards, uh, they fired the two people involved, you know, who were trying to be whistleblowers about it. So I urge people, don't just use the mainstream media as your sources on trying to find this stuff out. You know, talk to people like, you know, the organization here, Millions Against Monsanto, you know, organizations that are like that, because it's not really in the best interest of anybody profit motivated to let you know that, you're, that their product may be dangerous to you. Um, and I guess uh, that would be my question. Uh, wh what has your experience been with the media as far as this particular movement you're putting together now? Well, there are always upstanding journalists like Jane Aker and Steve Wilson whose story about being fired by their Fox News television station was part of the movie The Corporation. So I, I do encourage your listeners to watch The Corporation. It's available for free to watch online and also through documentary websites. Um, so, yeah, there are always good journalists who want to tell this story, and every good journalist wants to uncover a story that allows them to tell people something they didn't know. And, you know, despite the fact that for about 15 years, we've been eating genetically modified foods, as I mentioned earlier, only a quarter of the population is actually aware of this. So this is 
an ideal story that journalists always want to break. And sometimes you get good stories in mainstream papers. Um, we had some good success last week. There was a story written by Monica Eng for the Chicago Tribune, and then it got picked up by the Baltimore Sun and the L.A. Times and the Sacramento Bee, and then republished in a lot of other Internet news sites. Um, the word can get out and the story can be told, but we just have to do it on a much greater level than we are right now. And one thing that I've been noticing, we've been encouraging our members to support legislation at the state level. It is almost impossible to find any local reporting on state legislative initiatives around genetic engineering. There was a Washington Post story last week written by Lindsay Layton, and that was about 14 states that have legislation that would require labels on genetically modified foods. But if you look up any one of these state pieces of state legislation and try to find news stories about this legislation on the state level, it's non-existent. It's not being covered on a local level. So um, hopefully your listeners in the United States will, will start being citizen journalists and spreading the word and calling the the members of state legislatures that are standing up against Monsanto so valiantly and getting interviews and, and telling their stories and finding out what got them involved in this issue because clearly, you know, it's not for the glory. When a politician uh, introduces a GMO labeling bill, you could say, oh, well, that's easy. 90% of the public supports GMO labeling. But certainly, since most of the public isn't aware, um, you know, it, you, you don't get much attention for doing this sort of thing. And we need to give upstanding politicians more attention. We need to tell the story of state legislative initiatives to label GMOs because this isn't going to happen at the federal level. It's difficult even at the state level. You have politicians who are bought out by Monsanto even there. I was, I was reading some really good articles written about GMO labeling bills in Hawaii, but the the story was very, very sad. The story was that in Hawaii, where where a lot of the genetically modified seeds are grown out for commercial distribu distribution, in Hawaii, every politician in the state legislature gets money from the pharmaceutical or biotech industry, and they almost all get money from Monsanto. And this is, um, you know, it's a really dangerous state of affairs. But not all states are like this. Some states, for instance, Maine has um, state legislation that made public financing of elections the rule. And they've been able to elect some people from the working class. Imagine that. I mean, it's so rare now in our political system. In order to become a politician and win an elective office, you have to personally be rich. And if you've got your own money, then you can use that to to get the corporations on your side and and get enough money to run a race for elective office. But um, in a few states, there's public financing, and, and certainly not all states are as bought out by the biotech as Hawaii. So there is a chance at the state and local level to take action on this issue. Even at the very local level, there have been local initiatives to take control of their food supply and to make their own laws regulating food safety, regulating biotech, regulating genetically modified organisms, going GMO-free even. Some counties in California became GMO-free counties, and, and no one in those counties is allowed to grow genetically modified crops. So there, there are good stories to be told, 
but we need to spread the word and, and get more involved at the local level. I think that's one of the problems with American democracy is we're, we're always focused on what the president is doing and what Congress is doing. And if it's not uh, an issue in the federal races, you know, we don't bother to try to make an issue of it at the local legislative level. But I think there's an opportunity to do that. So I encourage everybody to find out. Go to organicconsumers.org. Go to your state page. Find out if there is legislation. There are 14 states with legislation to label GMOs. And in our current issue of Organic Bites, our weekly newsletter, we listed all of them. So I suppose I can just read them out to you right now. If you live in Alaska, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Iowa, Illinois, Maryland, New York, North Carolina, Oregon, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Vermont, or West Virginia, then there is legislation in your state that would mandate labels on GMO foods. And please contact the legislature, legislators who introduced the legislation. Talk to them. Ask how you can help. Contact your local legislator. Find out if they've given any support to the bill, and if not, why not? And educate your neighbors about it, because I think we have a much since there are more of us than there are of of the you know the corporations like Monsanto, we have a chance at the local level to implement through the democratic process the will of the people. That's actually a really great advice, and um, I've also kind of thought about this. Is what clicked into my head. A lot of states have ballot initiatives, like you can you can get petitions together to put something on a state ballot. Uh, when you can do that, sometimes you can get around uh, the state legislature at all. You can kind of circumvent, just move past the politicians. Uh, has anybody involved with your organization ever considered that route? Yes, there is a wonderful effort being coordinated to label GMOs and get that issue on the ballot in California. And let me find the Facebook group for that initiative, make sure that I'm saying it right. I think it's... it's Let's see here. Well, their Facebook group is uh, Label GMOs, It's Our Right to Know, an initiative for the 2012 California ballot. And let me find you their website. Because this, this really has a chance. You know, when you have an issue that has over 90% public support, you can take it straight to the people and... You know, you'll have support on the right and support on the left. And if people know that it's happening and, and you can, you know, in this case, it becomes a media battle. You've got to raise the money to to fight Monsanto in the, in the press and in public awareness. But if you can do that, um, this is where democracy really happens. The website for the California Ballot Initiative is labelgmos.org, L-A-B-E-L. GMOS.org. And, you know, donate, get involved, offer to volunteer to collect petition signatures. Um, if you know anybody in California, let them know that this initiative is happening. It's for the 2012 ballot. Um, signatures would begin being collected in September of 2011, and it's going to require a tremendous grassroots movement. But a tremendous grassroots movement is what it's going to take whether we're working on a ballot initiative, whether we're working on state or local legislation, whether we're trying to influence members of Congress, we need a strong grassroots movement. So that's why the Millions Against Monsanto campaign is organizing 
435 chapters in every single congressional district in the United States, and we want to create a true political force to make change in this country. I'll definitely be looking for the chapter in Michigan's 10th, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, um, it's the issue of local, I think, is another thing that I've seen people do is that sometimes, for example, you can do the, you know, things as an activist on the very local level within your city councils, uh, your public schools, for example. You know, you can get together uh, parents groups, for example, to say, look, we don't want this in our in our school lunches. You know, and you can get a lot. You can you generally get a lot done on a very local level about these sorts of things. In some cases, faster than you can on the federal level. And I guess it's kind of a trickle up theory because once people start to recognize that these things are important to their constituents, in theory, the politicians will respond. As you pointed out, 90 percent. You know, there are a lot of things that get forced on us uh, frequently through our system, and I think a lot of it is because of the fact that maybe 90 percent of the people say, "Hey." I agree, we need to stop X thing or Y thing, but 90% isn't doing enough to get the knowledge out that there's a problem in the first place, and 90% is not doing enough to actually make that manifest. Um, the, the corporations, of course, are quite content with our involvement in government. They rather like that it doesn't occur to us that the reason certain politicians get more airtime than others is because of their, their basis uh, as far as like you know their, their represent, representation of certain companies will get them favoritism um, in debates and things like that. It certainly benefits them to distract us with frivolous things like American Idol, which isn't to say that, you know, you can't watch American Idol, but, you know, it's the bread and circuses effect like in Rome. You know, let's just keep everybody paying attention to frivolous things while they, you know, choke down their genetically modified food and their high fructose corn syrup drinks and, you know, and keep them buying our products. Uh, and that's why I have to say uh, my hat is definitely off to you and, and your organization, and I'm glad to hear that you have local chapters. I'll definitely look into, uh, like I said, the Michigan's 10th district myself, um, because it's it's just it stands to reason, even if you don't oppose genetically modified ingredients, we make people label everything else. It doesn't, you know, it seems to me that that would be just as important as something along the lines of telling people what is in it. Um, that's another thing is that sometimes there's these, you know, mysterious allergic reactions that can kill you that you may not even know what you ate. You know, you could be allergic to something that was with, that was part of the genetic modifying process that you're not even aware of. You're like, well, why did I, you know, I'm not allergic to peanuts. Why did I go into hives or even worse than that? Sometimes these people are in the hospital. You know, sometimes people die from this and you have no idea about it until it's too late. And that's one of the reasons these, you know, these labels need to be present. You know, we as consumers are going to have to rise up on it because, in many cases, unfortunately, like you know, and sadly, there are some things that are sacred. And what's sacred to some of these people is profits and <laughs> capitalism. You know, things along that line are sacred to them. So, the only way you can hurt them is in their wallet, and that requires, uh, you know, empowered consumers who say, "Look, enough is enough." Um, but you're going to have to do it. You're going to, you know, don't give in to the temptation to buy the slightly cheaper a product, you know, don't give into the temptation to, you know, uh, buy the product that's dangerous for you. You're going to have to use some willpower because otherwise there never will be any effective change. Companies will continue doing this as long as it's profitable and we can do our best to make regulations, um, you know, and, and I'd still obviously encourage that if at the end of the day, you know, it's going to come down to making these companies aware that we're not going to buy their products if they're going to take, you know, risks with our lives. You know, and generally some of the effects other than those, you know, surprise allergies I was talking about, they're not immediately apparent. So it doesn't really occur to them, you know, in the long run, 
you know, it doesn't really hurt their consumer base to slowly kill us. You know, in fact, they make money on things like cancer treatment. So, you know, it's it's amazing how all of these things intertwine. It's like when you try to discuss with people, you know, the different solutions that we have, you know, you, you end up going on these long tangents because you start to realize, especially when you've, you know, you've looked at as many different activist movements as I have, how it's almost a spider web of problems. You know, it's like you're you're touching on the, the food issue here, and then, you know, that, that shakes the web over here to the medical issue, and then you're looking at the war issue, and then, you know, so many of these things are tied together uh, in ways that people don't immediately recognize. And you have to remember, folks, it's not in these people's best interest, meaning the ones who are exploiting us to educate us. We're going to have to be willing to do that ourselves. Um, there was a time when that was a lot easier. People kind of, you know, when, when everything was local, it was really easy. You know, if the local farmer did something wrong to the food, well, it's pretty clear whose fault that is. But now that we've expanded beyond that, in many cases, we're eating produce, we're eating vegetables that, have, that came from miles and miles away, in many cases from other countries even, where we have no idea what's going on there. It's not like we can walk down to the local United Fruit, uh, you know, orchard in South America and get some idea about what's being done to our crops. You know, it's in, in many cases, it's out of sight, out of mind. I think a lot of people, they're a little naive to it. You know, the, the term, there ought to be a law. You know, you assume, well, if something's dangerous, it should be illegal, right? Well, unfortunately, you know, you got to really establish that. And um, as we pointed out earlier, in many cases, it's, it's cheaper for these people simply to lobby, lobby politicians than it is for them to pay researchers to be absolutely sure that something is safe. That's absolutely right. The policy for genetic engineering at the level of the USDA and the Food and Drug Administration, the companies do all of the research. The government does no independent research. They don't hire contractors to independently research genetically modified organisms before they enter the food supply. So all of the data that we have on GMOs comes from companies like Monsanto with an economic interest to hide the truth from us. But not only that, the standard that the companies have to meet, it's not that the product is safe for human consumption. What they have to prove is that genetically modified crops or animals are not materially different from regular crops and animals. And um, so if you can't really tell the difference in, in say, like the protein content or um, the amount of fat, or some other, you know, just kind of simple way to define what is corn, uh, what is a salmon. Uh, if you can't tell the difference on those levels, then the assumption is, well, the genetically modified salmon is the same or substantially equivalent to a normal salmon. So, for instance, the Obama administration is considering right now the first genetically modified animal. And it's um, Aqua Bounty's genetically modified salmon that's genetically modified with genes from two different types of salmon. Um, I believe one is an Alaskan salmon, one is an Atlantic salmon. And then they've also thrown in the genes of an eel pout. It's a type of fish that manages to grow all year round, even in cold weather conditions. And so salmon, which has a very interesting life cycle and normally grows only um, in the summertime where they get a lot of light and they're in a warmer climate, uh, now the salmon that's been gen genetically engineered, it has this 
eel pout gene that allows it to grow all year round. And of course, this company wants to grow salmon for the farm-raised salmon industry in the Atlantic. And so when the FDA um, started looking at, well, is, is this salmon that's genetically modified with a totally, with two different species, um, with genes from two different species, is it substantially equivalent to normal salmon? Uh, the FDA looked at normal farm-raised salmon, which if your listeners are conscious about seafood, they may know normal farm-raised salmon grown in the Atlantic is not very healthy at all. It has very low levels of omega-3. You know, people think that they're supposed to eat salmon so they can get omega-3s. If you eat Alaskan wild salmon, you'll get enormous amounts of omega-3 essential fatty acids. But farm-raised salmon isn't very healthy. It doesn't have a lot of omega-3s. So it's not very nutritious. And it's also been bred to grow as fast as a natural salmon can be bred to grow. So then they compared these two types of salmon, the GMO salmon and the farm-raised salmon, and they found, yeah, the GMO salmon is even less nutritious, has less omega-3s than farm-raised salmon, but it's not that different to make a, a substantial or material difference that's legally relevant. And they found, oh, yeah, um, it grows really fast, and that gives it a lot of deformities and health problems. But, you know, the farm-raised salmon is kind of deformed and has the same types of health problems because it's been bred to grow too fast, too. And then they looked at the levels of IGF-1. IGF-1 is, is a carcinogen. Well, it's actually a hormone. But if you have um, higher levels of IGF-1, you are more likely to have cancer. So in that way, higher levels of, of IGF-1 are carcinogenic. Um, so the salmon that is farm-raised has pretty high levels of IGF-1, and the salmon that's genetically modified has even higher levels of IGF-1. But the government says, well, it's not that different, so we're not going to recognize a significant difference that would make us regulate this any better. So basically, they've decided that, like, okay, farm-raised salmon isn't very healthy for human beings, and this genetically modified salmon is even less healthy for human beings, but that's not the point. Is it any different? And their level of, you know, substantially similar is a pretty low bar, so they decide that it doesn't need any special regulations. And if the Obama administration approves this salmon, which they haven't done yet, so there's still an advocacy opportunity, we can all write to the Obama administration and ask them not to approve GMO salmon, but if they approve it, it is likely given the way they've been looking at the evidence, which they get, again, from the company, is very likely that it will be approved without labels. And, of course, then it doesn't matter that they approved it. I mean, obviously, we won't know whether or not it's in there or not. And, you know, as we've already been over, the, the fact that these people make a lot of claims, like, you know, that things aren't supposed to cross-pollinate, et cetera. And that's the thing about that salmon. I can just imagine that salmon somehow ending up in the, the, in the you know, the living supply uh, and damaging the rest of the genetics, you know, for salmon in general. Uh, the the danger that man has brought about on more, more than one instance where we've kind of interfered with the ecology, like uh, even just moving species that are natural but putting them in the wrong surroundings, like the things that we've done to bees, uh, like South American bees are getting, you know, uh, ran out by African bees that were brought there as some kind of science experiment. 
Um, you know, and we can do lots of damage to this ecology, and in some cases we do it in a way that's never going to be fixed. Um, you know, personally, they're like, well, yeah, you know, it has health problems, but hey, it's still, you know, it's still good. I've seen some of the, the way that the chickens, for example, in uh, factory farms, I've heard that they've genetically engineered them so that they, uh, so that they have, you know, more meat in certain areas, and these animals can't even stand up. And when you look at the poor things, they're not healthy. You know, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. You know, th this is what we're eating, you know, because I'm a, that was the other thing about this is it's tough, you know, was why I tell people, you know, to support your local farmers. Like my father was a dairy farmer back in the days when, you know, Willie Nelson was doing benefit concerts to try to help the farmers, you know, farm aid. And uh, we were totally organic, uh, you know, dairy farmers. Our cows to us were very important to us. They were basically like pets. We had names for all of them. We took care of them. You know, and the, we were basically having to compete with people that were giving stuff to their cows that were making their udders so ridiculously large that some of them were dragging on the floor, you know, and uh, in, in many cases, therefore, getting, you know, injured and then, you know, infected. And then the thing that's making your milk is also infected. It's so disgusting. But we couldn't compete because they would get just, you know, they would just make these huge outputs of milk, you know, and it put us out of business. You know, we ended up, ended up going bankrupt. Um, and that's why I tell people, you know, you got to support this if this is what you want. You know, what you pay for is what you're going to get. And the more you pay for that, the more you're going to get it. You know, the same thing is true of a lot of different things. You know, there are people who say, well, I don't like, you know, sweatshop labor. I'm like, okay, well, stop buying sweatshop labor products and you won't see them. You know, it's like you're, you're telling that to the guy who's wearing a sweatshop labor, you know, labor made, you know, piece article of clothing. You know, I'm like, well, they're going to continue doing it as long as you buy them, you know different corporations that get involved in that you know um a one of my listeners now is asking the question could you recommend some citizen journalist websites that you recommend as far as news on these topics oh that well i would recommend hate to blow my own horn but i would recognize the organic consumers association website um organicconsumers.org and we we just are constantly surfing the net for all of the best articles on these topics, and we collect them on our site, and every day we post about 10 new articles, and we get them from from really good websites that are doing great journalism. I do recommend Grist. We publish, republish, or link to a lot of articles on Grist, um, but you'll find all of our best sources on our website with links from our homepage at organicconsumers.org. Um, to all of our favorite bloggers and um, journalistic sites covering food issues. All right. Well, that's great. Um, you were giving some really great information, so I went ahead and extended the show time a little bit. But we, you know, if uh, unless you needed to go for some reason, obviously we can we can cut it off. But just like at the four minute mark, you were in the middle of a really good speech about something, and I didn't want to cut you off. But um, uh, but either way, thank you very much for being on today. And by all means, toot your own horn. As I as I told you before, when it comes to V Radio, if I'm asking you to be on, it's because I want to toot your horn. I'm going to pick up your horn and I'm going to pass it all over the Facebook and the Twitter and, you know, the Zeitgeist Movement of the Venus Project and the various things that I'm involved in. You know, um, so basically, uh, by all means, you know, do so. Plug the stuff that you're doing because that's that's why I asked you to be on in the first place. Um, but so thanks again, Alexis, for being on today. Um, was there anything more you wanted to add before we're done? Um, not today, but I would love to join you again. This was a really enjoyable conversation. I feel like I learned a lot and it was fun to talk to you. 
Well, excellent. You know, anytime you guys have any kind of updates or anything that you want to tell me, then by all means, I'd love to have you on. And maybe uh, if sometimes I do blogs, for example, about a specific topic, and then I'll call panelists to come on, kind of like you've seen in the mainstream media, they'll bring on, you know, people who know about certain things. So, you know, if you ever want to be a panelist on a future V radio broadcast, I'd be happy to have you on to talk about things from, you know, from the perspective of, you know, where you're coming from. Um, So... That was basically it. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Go ahead and give that website URL one more time. Organicconsumers.org. Okay. Um, all right, guys. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, well, you know, once again, it, please visit my website, v-radio.org, and listen to archives of more shows like this one. I've been working on the possibility of getting uh, one of the filmmakers from, I believe, The Future of Food on a future episode of V Radio. I'm still working on getting the uh, uh, Mr. uh, Professor Tester, the Ph.D. from MIT, to talk about geothermal energy. Um, And in upcoming episodes, we have a thing that we're working on now about Project Cybersyn, explaining uh, how science, more specifically computers, can be used to aid in uh, making uh, resource development decisions, you know, it's more resource-based economy stuff. Um, and um, Alexis, I'll talk to you a little bit off the air after we're done here, so go ahead and stay on the line. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. You know, Please feel free to distribute this show so that more people can learn about this work and get involved with your local uh, Millions Against Monsanto. Let's go ahead and say goodbye, Alexis. Oh, thanks so much. Hope to talk to you again soon. No problem. And um, I'll leave you guys with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.